Will you stand with me as we look at our text from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13 this morning? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time of coming before your throne, being led before your throne through music. And God, I pray that that these words continue that, that we stand in your presence this morning as we hear your truth. And Lord, if there's anything that's said that's not the fullness of your truth, let it just fall by the wayside. Let it, let it just be cast away. But God, open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to our souls this morning. Whatever it is you would have us to know, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Now, this week, we're looking at uh, a chapter in The Good and Beautiful God that's called God is Love. And as I looked over this chapter and reread the false narrative that this chapter particularly addresses, the narrative that God only loves us when we are good, when we are lovable, it reminded me of a conversation that Doreen and I had shortly after my father passed away when I was about 25. And I, like many of us, when we experience a loss, I just started to try to sort out spiritual matters, trying to sift through things. What, is, what, is, what, is, what does it really mean? And what, what's really behind it all? And, and I'll be honest, at that time, I didn't really understand the things of God. And if I'm honest, I really hadn't given them much thought. You know, we get in a habit when life is rolling to just let things be as they are and not consider or contemplate what else might be till we're confronted with something. And, and I remember the conversation that Doreen and I had was centered around heaven. And I made a comment that basically said, I love the idea of heaven, but how can we ever know if we've been good enough to get there? Looking back at that time in my life, it's clear that I was living in the false narrative that God's love is conditional. Be good and he loves you, be bad and he doesn't. I think we've all lived in that false narrative at some time or another in our lives, both in our relationships with others, right? When I'm reaching out to my friends and, and being good towards them, they love me, but when, when, when I kind of do something that's frustrating, they don't. It happens in our marriages, but it also happens in our relationship with God. And this narrative is insidious because it tells us that we are evaluated and loved based on our actions, not our identity. That's the underlying lie in this narrative. We are evaluated and loved based on what we do, not based on who we are. And we've all experienced that because we live in a world that evaluates us constantly. Was I good enough? Did I do enough to earn their respect? As kids, we feel the, the good versus bad narrative in every area of our lives. And it doesn't just die when we become adults. On some level, we're all still trying to be seen as good little boys and girls because that's what we were raised up in. 
And we're trying to be seen in this way so that we can be loved and accept being loved. Because it's a two-way street. Unconditional love comes from the person who is the lover. But, but it's hard for us to accept that because of this narrative of you have to be good to be loved. And so sometimes even when we're offered unconditional love, we can't accept it because we look in the mirror and we feel as if we have not been good enough to be loved this way. See, being loved because you're good is rooted in conditions and actions. And when Jesus comes along and says, you are the Father's beloved in me, you are loved because of your identity, not because of your actions, it's hard to accept because we don't find that anywhere else. And also because we're fallen and sinful beings. And so when we encounter a pure and holy love from God, it's natural for us to draw back. It's natural for us to, to recoil a little bit. We have the same reaction that Peter had in Luke 5 when he encountered the holiness of Jesus face to face. And he says this, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Because of this narrative of being loved based on condition, because of this narrative of conditional love, when we encounter unconditional love, our reflex is to pull back. And we respond by saying, depart from me. I can't accept this. Can I just say, it's not only natural for us to respond this way when we're faced with the holiness of God, it's not only natural for us to draw back, but it's even right and it's necessary because as we're going to see today, the drawing back is actually the beginning of the unraveling of self-righteousness. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees are living out of this narrative of be good and you'll be accepted. It's a narrative that embraces self-righteousness. It's a narrative that stands on self-righteousness. When Jesus is dining at the house of his newest follower, Matthew, this bad guy tax collector, the Pharisees show that this narrative is their mindset in verse 11. Listen to this again. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In essence, what they're saying is, how can he claim to be holy and eat with these unholy and bad people? How can he claim to be good and eat with the bad? This narrative of conditional love flies in the face of the person of Jesus and the God that he reveals. Listen to this quote from Brendan Manning. Here is the revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. Every Christian generation tried to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. And there's the reality we live in. It seems too good to be true. As we look at the truth that God loves us unconditionally, my goal for today is that we would embrace the fact that we are sinners. And I know that's not what we want to hear. And my hope is that as we embrace that reality, we'll find that it is the antidote to this narrative of self-righteousness. It's the antidote to this narrative of conditional love. 
and we're going to find that by embracing the fact that we are sinners, we can actually delight in God's unconditional love for us. We can help others delight in God's unconditional love for them, and we can live fully and deeply in God's grace moment by moment. So first, we have to accept that we're sinners. The Pharisees saw sinners everywhere they looked. Everywhere they looked except one place, the mirror. They saw them in tax collectors. They saw sinners in those who were sick, who had been hurt, who were paralyzed, who had leprosy. They saw sinners in those whose robes didn't fit the right way or didn't pray the right way or, or go to the temple the right way or didn't sacrifice in the right way or didn't tithe enough of the spices in their cabinet. And who was it that ended up saved by God's unconditional love? The very sinners that these Pharisees wanted to dismiss the very sinners who were reclined around the table with Jesus and walking with him, the very sinners he still calls and walks with today. Not the self-righteous Pharisees, but those that Matthew refers to in chapter 5, verse 3, as the spiritually poor. Listen to this in verse 12. But when he heard it, Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus reveals a deep, counterintuitive spiritual truth. James Bryan Smith says it this way in his book. The chief point is that there is only one thing that separates us from God, and it is not our sin. It's our self-righteousness. Our self-righteousness does not turn God from us, but us from God. It's not my sin that moves me away from God. It's my refusal of grace, both for myself and for others. See, here's the problem. Self-righteousness is a refusal to acknowledge that I need grace. And it leaves me trying to resolve my sin and make myself lovable to God through my actions, by improving my condition. Sooner or later, we all end up at the question that Paul came to in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, Paul embraced the truth that he is a sinner, which gave him the answer to this question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will save me from this body of death? Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. The self-righteous, on the other hand, when they land at this question, who will save me from this body of death, answer this way. Well, me. I will. I can save me if I only act better and make my condition more lovable. That's the problem with self-righteousness. The concept of conditional love will always lead to trying to improve our conditions so that we are lovable. Self-righteousness. The only people who are comfortable with conditional love are those who think highly of themselves. No one else is comfortable with this idea. Those are the self-righteous, the Pharisees in this story. Those who can look at others, even Jesus, just like these Pharisees did and say, be better like me, be good like me, be obedient like me. And then you'll be worthy of love and you'll be lovable to God. 
That's where the Pharisees were at. See, they refused to acknowledge that they were sinners. They recognized that in everybody else, but they refused to acknowledge it in themselves. So they could not delight in God's grace because a self-righteous person has no need of grace. I don't need grace when I'm okay with in and of myself. And so they think they're good, even better than everybody else, which means everyone, including God, must love them. And they believe that they're loved by God for their actions. It's exactly where I was in the conversation that I referenced earlier with Doreen. Thinking they have no need for God's grace. And when you don't think you have a need for God's grace, you'll never delight in God's grace. Because it's not yours, it's everybody else's. They need it. You'll miss the opportunity to bask in delight in God's grace that is lavished on us because of our sinful state. And those who are self-righteous can't help others delight in God's unconditional love, His grace, so they don't live fully and deeply into God's grace moment by moment because in their minds they don't need grace. They have their good works, which make them lovable by condition if God's love is conditional. And so grace remains utterly and completely useless to those who are self-righteous like the Pharisees. And they remain separated from God. Because when I think I have it all under control myself, I don't go to God. Not because of my sin, but because I'm self-righteous. That is that I'm righteous in my actions and my condition. And so we don't approach God in need. We actually approach God in false righteousness like the Pharisees did. I don't eat with sinners and tax collectors so I can go to God. Do you see how it's self-righteousness that separates us from God, not sin? The sin issue was resolved in Christ. There's a path to God through Christ for my sin. But I have to come to the place of saying I cannot do this in my own strength. I cannot come to you if I think that I am okay. Self-righteousness is an inner response to our sinful condition that tries to resolve our sinful condition by our own actions instead of by God's grace. So anytime we become aware of the sin in our lives and we say, I must do something about this, we're stepping towards self-righteousness. But when we become aware of the sin in our lives and say, God, you must do something about this because I can't and I need your grace, then we're actually moving to a place of delighting in his grace. That is why we must embrace our sinful state if we're going to come to God and live in a perpetual state of grace that's been poured out on us through Christ. See, here's the thing. Embracing our sinful state, acknowledging that all have sinned, just as Romans 3.23 says, is a pivot point. It's the beginning of repentance. And it starts with Jesus' narrative that God loves us unconditionally. If we don't accept that narrative, then when I'm confronted with my sinful state, I will not turn to that God. 
I'll turn back to my actions and try to do it better so that I can then go to that God and say, look, I've made me lovable. I've done better. I've cleaned me up. Now you can love me. Listen to what Jim Smith says. But Jesus wants us to understand that even the worst of our sins will not prevent God from loving us or stop God from longing for our return. Think about that. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. The thing that in those darkest places in your mind tells you that God could never love you. Think of that thing right now and know this, that that thing cannot prevent God from loving you and will not stop God from longing for you to return to him. That is reality. In spite of what we may feel at different times, that is the reality that's rooted in the fact that God's love is unconditional. And once we've returned to God, we are free to delight in his grace. Embracing our sinful state makes it abundantly clear that we are not saved. We are not brought back to God by our actions or because we are lovable, but because of the truth of Ephesians 2.8, shining like a beacon in our souls. We realize that we are saved by grace through faith and nothing else. And not just one time, when I confessed Christ and secured my eternal destiny, but every moment of my sinfulness. The only thing that pulls me out of sinfulness is God's grace poured out on me through Christ. It's not the fact that I'm lovable. What, nobody? It's not the fact that I do good. It's not my grand acts of obedience. It's not some self-help program. It's simply God's beautiful grace. And then we experience something else Brendan Manning wrote about. This is what he wrote. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. See, that narrative that God's love is conditional presses into us and says, when you become as you should be, God will love you. But the flaw with that is none of us are as we should be. And so God's love cannot be upon the condition of being who God made me to be. Because I'm not, and I won't be until I'm in his presence. That's exactly the truth that Jesus is conveying in Matthew 9, 12, when he said this. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, here's the thing. The self-righteous think themselves well because they see God's love as conditional and believe they have conditionally earned it. The sick are those who embrace the reality that they are sinners because they recognize that God is holy and good. And they realize that as they are, they have no part in him, but that by the grace of God, lavished on us by, through Christ, that they can be made well and whole by the great physician. There was an old Monty Python movie. Some of you might remember it. Some of you probably have um, demeaning thoughts of me because I even said that. But there's a scene where one of the knights meets the, the, the black knight who's blocking his path, and they have a sword fight. 
And he cuts off one of his arms, and he cuts off his other arm, he cuts off his leg, he cuts off his other leg. And the whole time this knight is being decimated, he looks up at the other knight who's trying to get by and says, no, don't leave, it's just a flesh wound. Come back and fight, it's just a flesh wound. That's us. That's us. When we stand before God in need of a great physician to resolve our sin, oftentimes we go, well, Lord, it's not that big a deal, it's just a flesh wound. I mean, it's not like I'm one of those. It's not like I robbed from my boss. It's not like I'm a murderer. It's just a flesh wound, God. Can I tell you a secret? When you minimize your sin before God, that's self-righteousness. When we minimize our sin, that is self-righteousness. And here's why it matters. Because when I make my sin small in my mind, I only need little grace to cover it. And it keeps me from delighting in God's grace. See, when we embrace our sinful state and we reject the idea of God's love as conditional, we're going to come to him not in our self-righteousness, but in a broken and needy state. Now, if you've ever been broken and needy and someone stepped into that and helped you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you had tremendous affection for that person in that moment. You had tremendous honor for the way they came into your mess and helped resolve it. Listen to this in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus straight up tells the Pharisees in response to their self, uh, self-righteousness to go and learn what it means that God desires mercy. I want to share an example out of Scripture of what it means to learn that God desires mercy. It's in Psalm 51. If you're not familiar with this psalm, this is David's response to embracing his sinful state. So David David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, his friend, mentor, Nathan's come to him and revealed this sin to him. And and he knows God desires mercy because he knows God's love is unconditional. And so after this moment where Nathan says, look, man, look at the sin you've committed, David sits down, pulls out his little quill and his parchment, and he writes this psalm. Now listen to this. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David's starting point is a place of sinfulness, not righteousness. He's coming to God and saying, I have sin. It's always before me. I can't do anything about it. He didn't come to God and say, look, but remember, I happen to be a man after your own heart. So I get more wiggle room than those who aren't after your heart. He's saying, God, I can't fix what I've done. Only you can. And in your mercy, my expectation is that you will blot out my transgressions, that you will wash me and you will cleanse me. There is no self-righteousness at all in his response to his sin. And we get down to verse 17 in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is the biggest difference between responding in self-righteousness and embracing our sinfulness. Self-righteousness never leads to a broken and contrite heart. It leads back to the question that I asked Doreen after my father died. How good do I have to be? 
What must I do to be good enough? What must I do to be lovable to God? So I want to pause here for a second and just connect some dots very quickly in hopes that you can more fully embrace your own sinful state. Think of it this way. It's like two ends of a continuum. We have self-righteousness on the one end that's fed by this false narrative that God's love is conditional. And on the other end, we have this place of embracing our sinful state. And that is sustained by the truth that God's love is unconditional. And so truth be told, we're all probably sliding back and forth on this continuum in our lives. It means I probably have, it has more influence in my relationship with God than I'd like to acknowledge. The fact that I'm sliding between self-righteousness and embracing my sinfulness. And then that separates us from God. In those moments, when I stand before God and say, I got this, I can fix this, I can change this, I will overcome this, I will eradicate this sin in my life by the power of self-control and will, not by your grace, then that separates me from God. Because self-righteousness, again, plays right into the narrative that God's love is conditional and I can do something to make myself lovable to God. But here's what happens when I embrace my sinful state. It makes it abundantly clear to me that I need God's grace. When I recognize that I am a sinner, it becomes abundantly clear to me that I need God's grace, not just for my salvation, but to live, to be here now, today. The more I'm aware of my sinful state, the more I realize I need God's grace. Listen to this quote from from Dallas Willard. True saints burn grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Here's what he means by that. Because I know I am a sinner, the only thing that keeps me in God is God's grace. So now I'm in a position to delight in God's grace. But because I know I am a sinner, I know I need a steady diet of God's grace every moment of every day. Once that stops, I'm drifting into self-righteousness. Once I stop being aware of that, I'm beginning to think that I can somehow earn what God is giving me. And so the next thing that happens once I embrace my sinful state is that I also begin to embrace your sinful state. Some of us have already done that and we do it a little bit too well. But here's what I mean by that. I recognize that you are in need of grace just as much as I am. And together, as we grow by grace into the image of Christ, we help each other praise God's grace out loud. It becomes a corporate activity. And we do that together in worship and in confession and in encouragement in true Christ-centered community. Community that is built on, standing on, and held together by the grace of God poured out on sinners who acknowledge they are sinful instead of a community of the good people the proud people, the self-righteous people. And we do that before a world that begins to praise God's grace because they realize that they have a need just as we have a need. And so we live more fully and deeply into God's grace moment by moment in every single day. Now, none of that happens 
None of it will come about until we acknowledge that we are sinners and that God accepts us as we are because he is love and his love is unconditional. And when we realize that, we step off the treadmill of actions and we live from our identity as God's beloved in Christ. Understanding and experiencing deeply that God loves us because of our identity in Christ, not because of our actions in the world. But it all starts with embracing our sinful state. Not as our identity, but as a fact of being human in a fallen world. And so here's the thing. If you haven't placed your trust in Christ, you really have no other option than to try to be self-righteous. That's all you can do. And it's exhausting. And it's fruitless. Repentance starts with embracing the fact that we are sinful and finding the grace of God to move us from the state of sinful by nature into the identity of God's beloved in Christ, all done by his grace. But it doesn't start until we recognize that we're sinful, that we have a need for grace. And so we're about to take communion. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus to receive the unconditional love of God, I want to invite you to participate in this time together as the body of Christ. And if you haven't found that freedom from trying to earn God's love conditionally based on your actions, I want to invite you into searching your heart in this moment and opening yourself to what God might be inviting you into today. But for all of us, I want you to embrace your sinful state during this time of communion, recognizing that if you weren't sinful, we wouldn't be doing this right now because there would have been no need for Christ. Whether you're for the first time embracing your sinful state or you're using this as a reminder of an ongoing and constant need for the grace of God given to you in Christ, Either way, as you prepare to receive communion, know this from Augustine. By loving us, God made us lovable. Why are you lovable? Because God loves you. And so communion is a reminder of God's unconditional love. Listen to this in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an unconditional love that's remembered in this time of communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six reminds us of that. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So right now as we take communion, we proclaim Jesus' death, a death that proves God's love for all, and it's unconditional. Our part is to accept this unconditional love of God. And communion is both a profession and a reminder of the fact that God has made us lovable in Christ. And so I want to invite you into taking a moment to bask in God's unconditional and overwhelming love for you. As you take this bread and you drink this juice, a love that was proven by God through the giving of his son for all of us, a love that we're reminded of in this moment of communion. Embrace your sinful state right now.
place it in God's unconditional love for you. And when you're ready, feel free to take the bread and the juice. Then, together, let's all delight in God's grace as we sing. So whenever you're ready, feel free to take the bread and the juice and join in this chorus of praising God's grace after that.